back in 2009, I wrote and published a book called The Best Job in the World, which was subtitled The Football Specials to the Press Box. It was basically a story of my season in diary form, all the games I went to, all the places I visited and a little bit of an insight into my life and my job. For the purposes of this podcast, which I'm very grateful, of course, to uh, my sponsors who are charleslouis.co.uk for for backing, uh, I'm going to read one of the chapters of this book. Uh, Just before I do, thanks very much, as I say, to charleslouis.co.uk. If you're interested in a mortgage or you need somebody uh, to to advise you on mortgages, have a look at their website. Uh, They have a phone number on there. You can give them a call as well. And maybe they can help you with with a mortgage for you, your family, or maybe even a company that you're involved in. So thanks very much to them. I really appreciate your support. So this is chapter one. It starts in July of 2008. In fact, the story starts on Tuesday, the 1st of July. Like many other Manchester City fans, I woke up excited by the prospect of finding out later that day who City would be playing in the first qualifying round of the UEFA Cup. City had qualified via the Fair Play League, the final gift of outgoing manager Sven-Joran Eriksson. As E.B. Straymore of the Faroe Islands was confirmed, I have to admit that I only had a vague idea where the Faroe Islands were. I thought they were close to Scotland and didn't realise they were quite so isolated. I discovered they were famous for puffins, whaling and buildings that looked like they had a lawn on the roof. I thought mowing the back garden might be tricky. I would definitely be a step into the unknown for everyone. I felt certain it would be a gentle opener though for the new season, for the City players at least, but for me it was going to be a round trip of over 1,800 miles. And I've always said I'd follow City to the ends of the earth. To say they won the Fair Play League, which is how it's often explained, is a bit misleading as they actually finished the fifth best behaved English team. But the teams above them had already qualified for Europe, so City entered the competition at the first qualifying round. The problem with going to the Faroes was how would I get there? I could have flown via Copenhagen, but the prices were shooting up by the minute. As I studied my options on the internet, I also had to keep costs down to a minimum. I had to persuade my bosses at the BBC that this was a game we must provide commentary on. So after a bit of research, I decided the cheapest way to do it without swimming was to fly direct from Stansted Airport. The problem was that the only flights were on Mondays and Fridays. I booked basic accommodation and I reckoned I'd have saved a few hundred pounds on what it would have cost to go via Denmark. So they agreed and I was booked and raring to go. Monday the 14th of July 2008, my week started with a drive down to London to catch the Monday tea time flight to the Faroe Islands. I wasn't quite sure what to expect. Would it be full of city fans wanting to sample the Faroe's culture before Thursday's game? The two other Brits on board were tourists who admitted they would attend the game, but they weren't football fans. So who would sit next to me? Well, I couldn't have handpicked my companion any better. Not only was Magna Argy the president of Atlantic Airways, which is the only airline to fly in and out of the islands, but he'd been a football commentator for 20 years himself. He's also hosted the US President Al Gore, or Vice President Al Gore, and former President Bill Clinton on visits to the Faroes, and spoken at the Transatlantic Climate Conference in April. 
We chatted for two hours, by which time, of course, while the flight was going on, I had a much better idea of what to expect before arriving, though there was still the small issue of landing. I'd been told that touching down in the Faroes was like coming in on an aircraft carrier. It's challenging because the topography is not very well suited for building airports, was how Magnus succinctly put it. The one we will be landing at, the only one on the islands, was built by British soldiers during their friendly occupation during the Second World War. The runway is just 1,200 metres long, so only smaller aircraft can land there. The weather conditions can be somewhat adverse. Maybe it would be more interesting for your story if it's a bit challenging today, he said, with a wry smile on his face, and disagreed and was grateful for the gentle landing a few minutes later. It was fascinating nonetheless. We came down through low cloud uh, to eventually see the mist-shrouded islands. It put in me in, in mind of the Lost programme, the cult US TV programme, remember that? Or Isla Sauna in Jurassic Park, with Magni serving as my very own Richard Attenborough. On landing, I spotted Christian Moritzson, a Faroese footballer who'd spent three years at City until he was released a few weeks earlier at the age of 19. What were the odds of him being there to wave off his relatives on holiday that day? He played in the same under-18s team as Michael Johnson and in the Youth Cup with Michael Richards, so knew City well. I could tell he was excited about the upcoming game, a chance to see one or two familiar faces, but clearly it was also a chance for him to reflect. After seeing his family through passport control, he told me, I left City because they said I wasn't good enough, so I've returned home to try something new. I think it would be a very slow game here on Thursday, and the standard will be like League 3 in England. Well, despite being released by the club, he told me he'd supported City and was in no doubt that they would win easily. I was expecting to catch a bus from the airport to Torshavn, the capital of the Faroe Islands, but Magni offered me a lift, though it proved to be a personal introduction rather than a simple road journey. I discovered that the airport, to my surprise, was 49 kilometres from Torshavn. I'd imagine everything would be smaller. In his 4x4, he took me there via the, via the scenic route, up narrow, twisting roads with sheer drops on both sides. The views and the road were breathtaking. Although there was no snow, the quickly ascending road weaved between what looked like the poles of slalom skiers when they're racing through the Austrian mountains on Ski Sunday. I must admit I felt a little bit nervous, but trusted my driver who'd presumably made this journey many times before and in much worse weather conditions. Magni's aim was to show me the breathtaking view of the island of Koltor, which I suspected was the most iconic of the islands, just because it looks so unusual. I think most people, when imagining an island, think of it being round and rising out of the sea to a perfect peak in the middle, like Tracy Island in Thunderbirds. This one starts low to the sea at one end and rises evenly at what looks like a 25 degree angle to reach high cliffs at the far end and is green with no trees. In fact, Thunderbird 2 could have taken off from there. As we continued to climb, my excitement grew as Magni told me we'd get a perfect view right around the next corner, but then the mist closed in. What an anticlimax. All I could see, just about, was the hand in front of my face, and that's not a pretty sight at the best of times. 
This situation happened to me once before on a family holiday in Austria many years ago when we spent half a day driving around numerous gravity-defying hairpin bends to the top of the Grossglockner, the country's highest mountain. Once again, it was a beautiful ascent until 10 minutes from what I would, was told would be the gorgeous view of the Pastores Glacier. In came the clouds, and the nearest I've seen to this alleged stunning panorama was the postcard I bought at the gift shop. Still, the pharaohs are known for their atmospheric fog, and I was here for a week, so there might be another chance, third time lucky. Eventually, Magni's fascinating tour came to an end, and he dropped me off at the hostel, the youth hostel I'd booked, a clean and tidy little place close to the port and to the stadium. If everyone in the Faroe Islands was as friendly as Magni, the city fans following me there later in the week would have no fears. I'd made it my task to visit both the home grounds of EB Straymore, as a city game had been switched to the National Stadium in Torshaven. The club had two home venues because, as the name might suggest, the two original clubs, EB and Straymore, are from two different villages. They joined together in the 90s with a philosophy that one smaller club is stronger than two small clubs. <laughs> you know what I mean. To visit both grounds, I had to visit both villages, which were some distance apart and on different islands. I was now beginning to understand the scale of the place and was a little worried it might not be easy to get around without a hire car. I made my way to Torshaven. The centre was only five minutes away by foot, making the tourist information centre my first port of call. I'd heard through a friend that someone called Solfred Ikroki, hope I got the name right there, who had spent the last year on an exchange visit with a tourist office in Preston, worked there. I didn't know the name if the name was male or female, but I knew that they'd be able to speak English. The first person I met was the boss, a lovely lady called Ingigoro, who also spoke perfect English, as well as Faroese, the native tongue, and Danish, the second language of the islands. I got the feeling that she'd been expecting me, perhaps the work of Magni, who I suspect had told them I might be in. Before long, we were leafing through maps and islands and scanning the bus timetables. It quickly became apparent that it would be almost impossible to visit both grounds in one day. Ingigero picked up the phone and got in contact with somebody at EB Straymore. Though, of course, she could have been on the other end of phone a friend or who wants to be a millionaire, for all I knew, because I couldn't understand a word. As she replaced the receiver, I was told I would be picked up by a car in about half an hour. While I waited, Ngero introduced me to Solfred, a pretty young woman in her twenties, who told me about her trip to Preston. I arranged to record a radio interview with her that later that day before being whisked off by my waiting car ride. My driver was a lifelong E.B. Straymore fan, Esmar Olsen, and he took me on the trip of a lifetime from one end of the biggest two islands to the other. We travelled through a five-kilometre tunnel carved through solid rock and along the side of a breathtaking fjord to the club's normal home ground. This was the stadium originally used by Straymore. The main stand was modern but small, with multifunctional office space designed for use by the local community. It had about 10 rows of seats spread along two-thirds of the length of one touchline. On the opposite side of the pitch was a steep-sided hill scattered with loose rocks. This only allowed room for a small fence, which stretched behind both goals. 
It looked like something from an old Sabutio table football game I'd had as a boy. I was pretty handy at that game. I used to play regularly against my pal Barry, a big Man United fan. I usually beat him. My team was called Worldwide City. Quite prophetic given the players in the current City squad. Back in April 1974, I'd been beating Barry at Sabutio as we listened to commentary of City beating United at Old Trafford 1-0 thanks to that Dennis Law backheel. I was already dreaming that one day I might be the City commentator. Two years later, I was at Wembley with my dad watching City win the League Cup, never suspecting it would be their last major trophy for such a long time. By contrast, E.B. Strainmore's most recent trophy had been the Faroese Cup, which had earned their place in the UEFA Cup. Esmar gave me the chance to lift it high, like Mike Doyle had done that day at Wembley. Being at Strainmore's tiny ground put everything into perspective. City's opponents later that week were surely going to be the smallest club they'd ever play in a series competition. But, as Jimmy Cricket might say, there's more. Next, Esmar took me to EB's ground, which is only used for youth football, but had previously hosted first-team fixtures. To get there, we had to cross the relatively new bridge between the islands of Stray Moy and Estuary Moy, or something like that, and go far north as possible to the village of Idy. Just like the Straymore Stadium, the surface was artificial and next to a steep incline. This was far more spectacular, though, being surrounded by three sides of the North Atlantic and the other rugged, rock-strewn hills. It seemed to be the only flat spot for miles and just big enough for the pitch and the small wooden changing rooms. There were a few footballs lying around near the dugout, so I kicked one against the advertising hoardings for a few moments. I could now claim I'd played at one of football's most remote and stunning venues. If ever that expression it's a stone's throw from was true, this was it. I can't imagine how many misdirected goal kicks have resulted in footballs floating out into the Atlantic, heading for Iceland. It made me think of Shrewsbury's old gay meadow and City's embarrassing FA Cup defeat in 1979, when I'd been told that if a ball went over the Stan roof, there were ball boys waiting in a boat in the nearby River Severn, ready to fish the ball out the water. That would have been a risky job here in the Faroe Islands. Having seen the two stadiums, I then had the pleasure of meeting Roland Hoistead, E.B. Strainmore's larger-than-life chairman, who greeted me with, what an amazing draw it was. Someone asked me before I went to Geneva for the draw who I wanted, and I said, Manchester City. It was our lucky time this year. I was never off the phone to fans after that. It's the biggest game in Faroe East football. Yes, we've had France and Germany here playing internationals, but never a club side as big as City. After another spectacular 45-minute drive back through our awesome surroundings, we're in Torshavn again at the Tors Vula Stadium, which would stage the game. I collected my press pass and was led to my commentary position, which was in a bedroom. I was told the room overlooking the, overlooking the pitch was to be my vantage point, but was normally used as a dormitory for young players on training camps there. At least I'd be able to have a lie down after the game. Uh, and I'd be dry as the rest of the stadium was open to the elements. By now I was missing the Manchester rain, at least it stops occasionally. There had been almost continuous rain falling since my arrival. I was told Thursday match day would be dry, which seemed hard to believe. 
As promised, I returned to the tourist information office for more advice from the ever-cheerful Ingegero and interview Solfrid live on BBC Radio Manchester. Ingegero told me that a Faroese cultural evening was happening and I hoped to attend that evening, which promised local poetry, dancing and cuisine, but had been rearranged for Thursday, which ruled me out. So she booked me in at a fish buffet where I was promised a chance to sample the specialities of the island. As well as all the usual offerings like sole, cod, place and salmon, there was whale meat and blubber. The meat was black and chewy, but with a slice of blubber to smooth its passage down my throat, it was just about tolerable. Not a delicacy, I'll be trying again though, especially when Chef Niels told me it's got quicksilver, which is mercury in it, so you can't eat too much. Quicksilver pollutes your body and doesn't go out again. Another reason to leave whale meat to the Faroese. I spent the late evening updating my blog on the BBC website, sat in my room at the hostel, with no need for artificial light, as the sun was still shining, or at least occasionally blaking through the blanket of cloud, as late as 11.30pm. Well, that's where I'm going to leave it for now, um, before the match actually starts. If this is something you like to listen to, and you want me to do some more, maybe I will, um, if people... Um, not enough people, I should say, are, are interested. That's fine as well. Hope you enjoyed that reading from Best Job in the World. Thanks very much to charleslouis.co.uk for their support. And I will see you with another podcast sometime soon.